Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, we'll be exploring what's arguably one of my favorite screwball comedies of all time, Preston Sturgis's The Miracle of Morgan's Creek from 1944. Produced by Paramount Pictures and written and directed by Sturgis himself, it stars Eddie Bracken, Betty Hutton, Diana Lynn, and William Demarest. Now, whenever I've shown someone The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, the first question I often get asked is, how in the world did this movie get made? After all, not many studio-era filmmakers had the guts to make a film parroting the Immaculate Conception, but Preston Sturgis did. The Miracle of Morgan's Creek is deceptively simple in its provocation. Small-town girl Trudy Cockenlocker goes to a farewell party for soldiers against her father's orders and he also happens to be the town's police chief. While making Mary, Trudy hits her head on a chandelier. The next morning, she wakes up disoriented, only to realize the horrors of the previous night. She remembers she got married to a soldier, but she can't remember his name, except that it has a Z in it, like Ratsky Watsky. A few weeks later, Trudy discovers that she's pregnant. She enlists the help of her dependable boyfriend, Norval, to come up with a plan. They'll get married using the fake name Ratsky Watsky, which will provide her cover and a marriage license. Then, she'll file for a divorce, get married to Norval using their real names, and raise her baby in legitimate domestic bliss. Sounds simple, right? Well, not quite. The Miracle of Morgan's Creek's production history is a testament to the power of omission and Preston Sturgis's cleverness. On July 8, 1942, Sturgis began writing a short story that would become the foundation for The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. Back in 1937, he conceived of an idea about a sly take on the Immaculate Conception, a small-town girl who doesn't know how she becomes pregnant. Nothing came of it, so he filed it away among his trove of half-baked ideas and unfinished scripts. Flash forward to 1940, Broadway star Betty Hutton hit the big time in the Cole Porter, Herbert Fields, and Buddy De Silva musical, Panama Hattie. At the time, it was reported that her co-star, Ethel Merman, cut out one of Hutton's numbers out of jealousy. Here's Betty Hutton telling the story to Mike Douglas on his television show in 1977. So 19 B.G. De Silva was the head of it. He had done Panama Hattie with me and Ethel Merman, and she took out the only hit song I had in the show, you know. And I went tearing to him opening night because she left it in all during the the, Tryout. the tryouts or anything, even the opening benefit night, you know. So I went tearing to him, and I was crying hysterically. You know, it was like, that's all I had to do, really, in the show, except nod my head, you know. So, because uh, that's what a big star on Broadway can do to you. I love her, though. She's oh, something she's else. she's fantastic. Uh, but anyway... You can't blame people for no, protecting themselves. No, it was... Cole Porter couldn't write enough encores and out of game, but I didn't know that I'd underplayed that mother all the way through. <laughs> However, 
Recent research by Merman's biographer Brian Kello notes that it was actually De Silva who asked, they ain't done nothing right by Arnell, due to what he calls Hutton's always an overdrive performance style. Hutton, of course, was dejected, but De Silva encouraged her to stick with the show. Here's Hutton recalling what De Silva told her next. I went to Buddy, I said, Buddy, what do you mean you're taking out that number? He said, now hold it. I'll tell you what, Betty, that's her contract, but I'm going to make you a star. I said, how are you going to make me a star, you know? He said, I'm going to Paramount. I'm going to be head of Paramount. He promised me that night to bring me to Hollywood. So the song was out of the show? Yeah, it was out. But uh, that dried up my tears though, because in one year he brought me to Hollywood, and uh, uh, it was great because then we had Cecil B. DeMille, we had the really great producers and directors, and and it wasn't a tough mic because you had such great great writers, but they were so gigantic, and 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 all the crew and the love you got on that set was something I hated to go home. In 1941, it was publicly announced that De Silva would become Paramount's executive producer. One of his first tasks was to make good on his promise to Hutton. He cast her in the patriotic musical The Fleet's Inn, co-starring Dorothy L'Amour, William Holden, and Eddie Bracken. The film's box office triumph made her an overnight sensation with the movie going public. Throughout her life, Hutton always credited De Silva for her early career successes. De Silva was eager to capitalize on Hutton's momentum. All they needed was a star-making role. Historian Otto Frederick notes that Hutton was the one who asked Sturgis to write her a comedy. He looked into his bag of stories and landed on his underdeveloped Virgin Mary farce. As Sturgis fleshed out his idea, he took inspiration from his own dalliances with Adelaide Kip Rhinelander, niece of his friend T.J. O. Rhinelander. As Sturgis told it, Adelaide was in love with a man who he says looked like the Prince of Wales, but wasn't allowed to go out with him. Adelaide's uncle would only permit her to go out on dates with the young Preston. This situation formed the basis of Trudy's relationship with Norval, who preys on her paramour's infatuation to sneak to the soldier's going-away party behind her father's back. You certainly help me out. Anytime. You really mean that, Norval. Really mean what, Trudy? You'd help me out anytime? Why, Trudy, that's almost all I live for. Except maybe getting into the army. I can't think of anything that makes me more happy than helping you out. I almost wish you'd be in a lot of trouble sometime so I could prove it to you. You can prove it tonight. Huh? I am in a lot of trouble, Norval. They didn't call off that military dance. Papa just called it off as far as I was concerned. Oh, he did? Well, he probably had pretty good reasons then. That's what parents are for, to listen to their advice. So I was always miss losing my parents so much. I know, Norval, but he didn't have a good reason. He's just old-fashioned. Soldiers aren't like they used to be when he was a soldier, you know, all in France and like that. Oh, aren't they? Of course they're not. They're fine, clean young boys from good homes, and we can't send them off maybe to be killed, and rockets, red glare, bombs bursting in air without anybody to say goodbye to them, can we? They probably got their families. Well, even if they have, they don't have girls and dancing and... How about those who haven't got any families? How about the orphans? Who says goodbye to them? You ought to know about them. The superintendent probably comes down from the asylum for old times' sake. Norval, I think you're perfectly heartless. I just 
hope you get into the army someday. And the last thing that happens to you, the last thing you get before you sail away, the last thing you have to treasure while fighting beneath foreign skies is a kiss from the superintendent. Well, what do you want me to say? I want you to say, Trudy, it's your bounden duty to say goodbye to our boys, to dance with them, to give them something to remember, something to fight for. I won't take no for an answer. So I'll drop you off at the church basement, take in a movie, then pick you up and take you home like a chivalrous gentleman so you won't get in wrong with Papa. That's what I want you to say. I won't say it. Oh, please, Norville. I won't do it. I won't sit through three features all by myself. Well, couldn't you sleep through a couple of them? Suppose, suppose you get caught. Where does that put me with your father? Why should I get caught? Anyway, I'm not doing anything wrong. Well, the whole idea sounds very cheesy to me, Trudy. I'm not trying to be d d d d disagreeable, but if you want me as a kind of a false front, a kind of a decoy, I might just as well take you home right now and, 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 and say goodbye to you. It doesn't cut any ice with me. Go ahead, cry. Cry all you like. I've seen you cry before. <laughs> oh, st st stop it, will you? I'm not crying for me. I'm just thinking of those poor boys going away like poor little orphans. Well, you're not the only dame in town, are you? That's right. Insult me. I'm not insulting you, Trudy. I... Oh, where will I meet you? Sturgis submitted an incomplete synopsis to De Silva on August 27, 1942. A few weeks later, on September 10th, he sent an incomplete script. In spite of the fact that Sturgis's story did not have a definitive conclusion, on September 11th, he signed a contract to write and direct the film. According to historian Michael Slowick, Sturgis's early draft already contained elements that were troublesome, most notably Trudy being plied with alcohol by servicemen at the farewell party and her subsequent drunkenness. However, Paramount was unconcerned and forged ahead with the project anyway. In addition to Hutton, Sturgis and De Silva cast Eddie Bracken, Diana Lynn, and a roster of familiar Sturgis character actors, including William Demarest, Julius Tannen, and Porter Hall. On September 15th, De Silva gave Sturgis a $775,000 budget and allotted him a 42-day shooting schedule beginning on October 21st. Amidst all of their contractual and production negotiations, the Production Code Administration had not yet read Sturgis's script. Paramount's censorship liaison, Luigi Larashi, had sent PCA Sturgis's first draft, but he later instructed them to disregard it because Sturgis wanted to make significant changes. Sturgis completed a second draft by October 14th, which was also incomplete, and after some meetings with PCA head Joseph Breen and Sturgis, Larashi sent the script to the PCA on October 21st. Now remember, October 21st was the first day that the Miracle of Morgan's Creek began shooting, which meant that the PCA did not have enough time to review the revised material. This process was highly unusual, and arguably the biggest reason why the Miracle of Morgan's Creek ended up being so incendiary. During the Code Era, a film would be subjected to extensive regulatory oversight in its entire life cycle from pre-production to its theatrical release, beginning with treatment reviews through to script provisions and finally, release print submissions, the PCA would provide feedback to filmmakers to ensure that code regulations were being upheld. Now it's important to remember, the production code was industry self-regulation. Censorship is counterintuitive to artistic expression, but in the fraught political climate of the mid-20th century, the production code was, unfortunately, a necessary evil. The censorship process wasn't always smooth, and Hollywood filmmakers often clashed with overzealous demands, but the PCA's job was not to ban films. 
they existed for the industry's financial and cultural gain. Re-editing a film was expensive, so by regulating film form and content during the production phase, they were attempting to limit outside influence on Hollywood products by anticipating how state and local censors might object to a film once it was distributed. Paramount and Sturgis sidestepped this process almost entirely. The PCA had barely any time to review Sturgis's material, so they couldn't provide Paramount with information about potential problems and acceptability risks until filming was already underway. Now, all of this is not to say that the PCA gave Sturgis a free pass. Far from it. After receiving the script on October 21st, Breen sent seven pages worth of objections to Paramount. But the PCA's delayed review process was Sturgis's gain. Because they received an incomplete script and the subsequent scenes in a piecemeal fashion, it was difficult for them to hone in on the film's salacious humor. Historically, the censors focused on what Michael Slowick calls the large-scale messaging of the film. Of course, if you read a code file, you'll find countless examples of what seems like nitpicking, discussions about something as seemingly insignificant as a gesture or even a particular word. But generally, Breen's office worked to ensure that filmmakers were upholding the traditional Catholic values upon which the code was based. Individual scenes or shots could be reworked, but it was much more difficult to reconceptualize a film from the ground up. In comparison to some of Sturges's other comedies, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek is relatively light on gregarious slapstick elements. Instead, Sturgis leans into Screwball's breakneck pace and body wisecracking, delivered most effectively from Trudy's precocious teenage sister, Emmy, played by the buoyant Diana Lynn. Emmy is mature beyond her years, and is Trudy's stalwart ally and voice of reason in the face of their father's strict, almost overbearing parenting. When Constable Cockenlocker refuses to allow Trudy to go to the farewell party, Emmy quips, People aren't as evil-minded as they used to be when you were a soldier, Papa. When I want any advice out of you, I'll ask for it. And you'll get it. Oh, yeah? I wish Mama was here. So do I. Believe me, but she ain't. Daughters. So as your father and mother combined, I'm here to tell you that you ain't going on no more military parties. Read what it says here in the paper. If you don't mind my mentioning it, Father, I think you have a mind like a swamp. What? Sturgis uses Emmy as an anchor to contrast with Trudy, who's capricious, idealistic, and a bit unruly. Much of the film's comedy surrounds the consequences of Trudy's unruliness, and thrives in that nebulous space of deliberate omission. This also works at the narrative and structural levels. Sturgis was a fan of the flashback, and used it in such films as The Power and Glory from 1933 and The Great McGinty from 1940, largely because he believed it heightened narrative drama. The Miracle of Morgan's Creek is told almost entirely in flashback, beginning with a tantalizing but vague long-distance telephone call between the Morgan's Creek newspaper editor and the state governor about the titular miracle. As the score swells and the credits begin to roll, we see the editor continuing to talk on the phone, complete with panicked hand gestures and wild facial expressions. Of course, between the title cards and the music, we as the audience don't exactly know what he's telling the governor. As the credits finish rolling, the camera cuts to the governor's office. It's none other than the great McGinty himself, played once again by Brian Dunleavy, as well as his boss, Akim Tamaroff. This suggests that the miracle of Morgan's Creek takes place in the relatively same time frame as Sturgis's earlier comedy. Here's how that scene plays out. Hello, Mr. Governor? Yeah, the editor of what? Bugle, yeah? 
What town's that again? Morgan's Creek. Is that in my state? Never heard of it. You never heard of it, huh? Well, by tomorrow morning, Morgan's Creek will be the most famous town in America. Wild. This is the last three phone in the town. Every room has been reserved for 15 miles around. Tidy. A hundred newspaper men are here already, and 500 more expected in the morning. There's a shortage of food, telephones, milk, telegraph wires, transportation, policemen, and everything else. We need a lot of help. We're going to tear this town up with the roots. And that's only the half of it. We need state police, food, water, beds, blankets, plumbing. Wait a minute. Take it easy, will you? What happened down there? You got a flood or did you strike oil or something? Did we strike oil or something? Tell him. No, Mr. Governor, we did not strike oil. Anybody can strike oil. We have oil. not got a flood. Anybody can have a flood. What we've got, Mr. Governor, is... You got what? Yes, Mr. Governor. Shut up. Not you. Now, he's sure your facts. This is terribly important. I wish I could be down there myself. This is a matter of state policy. State pride. National pride. Hold the wire a minute. Get on this line. Take everything down in shorthand. Get a map of the state. Make sure that Morgan's Creek is in it. If it ain't, maybe we could persuade him to move over or something. Oh, boy. Yes, Mr. Governor. Shut up. Not you. Get me all the newspaper men. I want to speak to all the radio stations. What happened? Things like this got to be guided. What happened? Shut up. What? You better get right down to Morgan's Creek. Buy up a few choice corners. Maybe some hotel sites. They'll need some. And the bus franchise will be very valuable. Morgan's what? Morgan's Creek. Creek, like a little river. A little river? Should have a big dam. Why not? All right, now give me all the facts. This is the biggest thing happened to this station. We stole it from the Indians. Bye. Who's excited now? I'll tell you all I know, Mr. Governor. As a matter of fact, I started the whole thing. You started it. I was writing my midweek editorial. That is to say, I was looking for a subject for it. I'm rather famous in my editorial for this part of the state. He's going to tell us his life story. And I noticed that there were quite a few soldiers in the town. Well, not. What a bore. And it occurred to me that the girls in the town and the soldiers around the towns would make an excellent subject for my editorial. All right, all right. Let's have it. We're going to get it anyhow. Flood? No. Famine? Nope. Political revolution? Not quite. But it sure sounds serious. Morgan's Creek is such a small town that McGinty doesn't even know whether it's in his state. But by the sound of his conversation, it's ground zero. The flashback structure employed here also gave Sturgis more wiggle room with the PCA. Remember, they didn't receive a nearly complete script until the first day of shooting. Like the film's audience, they're in the dark about the cause of this tantalizing opening scene. Sturgis was banking on his audience to fill in the gaps. What small town problem could be so dire to involve the governor? Our minds are already racing. The PCA had three major points of contention. First, the inference that Trudy is drunk at the farewell party. They feared that the film was glamorizing the unbecoming, loose behavior of a young small-town girl. In his October 21st correspondence with Sturgis and Larashi, Breen wrote, We understand from our discussion of yesterday that Trudy will at no time be shown to be drunk. It's acceptable to indicate that she, along with the others, did drink some champagne, but she should not be shown drunk. Sturgis remedied this by giving a rather innocent reason for Trudy's disorderly behavior. She bumps her head on a chandelier that, incidentally, looks rather phallic. In spite of Trudy's bump on the head, Sturgis goes to great lengths to convey through omission and innuendo that she was indeed drunk. He does this a few ways. First, by showing the party guests drinking what's labeled as lemonade. It could be spiked or just hard liquor. 
we don't really know. Second, drunkenness is conveyed through Betty Hutton's physical performance. Trudy may not be technically drinking alcohol, but as the night goes on, she's much more uninhibited. By daylight, her uncoordinated stumbling and slurring words give the unquestionable impression that she's drunk. So much so, that when Trudy reunites with Norville in the morning, he declares, Well, what do you think? Holy mackerel, you know what time it is. Oh, we had a wonderful time, Norval. We sang, and then we danced, and then we had the lemonade, and then it's almost as if somebody slugged me or something. Isn't that funny? The next thing I remember, I was driving down the street, and all of a sudden I said, Norval, Norval must be waiting for me. I bet I'm a couple minutes late. You win. I'm awful sorry, Norval. If there's one thing I despise, it's people who... I mean, if there's one thing I love, it's punctual. Punctual people who are on time. You've been drinking. Who's been drinking? I never had a drink in my life. How dare you insinuate I've been drinking? Well, you certainly don't get what you've got on lemonade. Well, I certainly did. All right. Michael Slowick argues that Sturgis uses Norval to guide his audience's response by voicing a reasonable interpretation for them to consider. Throughout this sequence, he adheres to the code's regulations technically, but gets his point across succinctly through the power of suggestion, visual cues, and clever omission. The PCA's second major point of contention is the film's handling of Trudy's marriage and initial pregnancy announcement, which he recollects in pieces while in a hungover fog. Perfectly up to some place we were dancing, and the next thing I remember, I was driving down Main Street, and Marvel was waiting. You didn't go to sleep somewhere or something? I don't think so. You know me, I never get tired. Did somebody say something about let's all get married or something? No. Or did I dream it? Yes, they did. And some of those poor, dumb kids thought that would be a wonderful idea. No. Can you imagine getting hitched up in the middle of the night with a curtain ring to somebody that's going away that you might never, ever see again, Emmy? You don't suppose any of them were dumb enough to... Trudy. What's that on your finger? You didn't... You didn't... Oh, Trudy. Are you sure you can't remember his name? How can I remember his name when I can't even remember? Wait a minute. I remember I danced with a tall, dark boy with curly hair and a little short one with freckles and a big fat blonde one with sang in my ear and but if i married any of those it would have been the tall dark and with curly hair don't you think that's a big help now all we've got to do is line up all the curly-haired men in the army and the navy and the marine corps it and had a z in it his hair no his name foolish like ratsky watsky private ratsky watsky or was it zitsky witsky with a name like that, I'd forget him. Oh, now you knocked it out of my head. What's the matter with us? If you got married, you must have given your name. Now, all 
we've got to do is find out where you got the license. And then we've got your name and his name and the date and everything, and there you are. I just remembered something else. What? Somebody said don't give your right name. But you didn't fall for it. You told them to go suck a lemon. You weren't such a corn-fed dope as to... What name did you give? I don't remember. The film fades into the next scene, which takes place at a doctor's office several weeks later. The doctor advises Trudy to return in a month. The camera pans to her, slumped over with her head between her knees. The doctor consoles her, saying that she'll soon find her husband. The film then flashes forward yet again to a scene in a lawyer's office, where Trudy seeks legal advice about how to find her husband. Certainly she's married. Even with a phony name, Mr. Johnson? What's the name got to do with it? Marriage is a matter of fact, not names. Marriage is celebrated, I presume. They usually are. I think so. Well, since you're here on behalf of a friend who does not wish to appear, all I've got to say is your friend ought to be ashamed of herself. She's a very nice girl. It just happened, that's all. I mean because of her carelessness. The responsibility for recording a marriage is all but not the woman. If it wasn't for her, marriage would have disappeared long since. No man is going to jeopardize his present or poison his future with a lot of little brats hollering around the house unless he's forced to. It's up to the woman to knock him down, hog time, and drag him in front of two witnesses immediately, if not sooner. Any time after that, it's too late. Your friend doesn't remember the bridegroom's name. No, sir. And she used an assumed name. Perfect. That's really airtight. Wouldn't you do anything, Mr. Johnson? What, for instance? Divorce him or null him or... Or sue him for alimony? Sue who? And all who? Look, I practice the law. I'm not only willing but anxious to sue anyone, anytime, for anything. But they got to be real people with names and corpuses and meat in their bones. I can't work with spooks. Your friend doesn't need a lawyer, she needs a medium. The main issue here is that Sturgis suggests that Trudy only got married because she was drunk, and that she and her bridegroom gave fake names, which, as Emmy points out, means they'll never be able to find one another again. Trudy might as well have been married to a ghost. For the PCA, this scene, combined with the subsequent plot that Trudy cooks up with Norval, makes a mockery out of marriage one of the cornerstones of the production code, and an institution upon which Joseph Breen believed formed the foundation of a healthy, thriving society. Breen voiced his objections in correspondence with Paramount, but he was also a realist. He understood that it was impossible for Sturgis to get rid of this plot structure because the film's entire premise hinges upon Trudy's amnesia. Had she been in her right frame of mind, it's inconceivable that she'd get married on a whim and become pregnant. Rewrites would mean extending the film's production schedule and increasing Sturgis's budget, which the PCA tended to avoid when possible. In the end, Breen conceded that Sturgis remove only one line from the morning after scene. When Emmy says, You're not the first dumb cluck who got herself in a snarl. What with the war and all, there'd probably be millions of them. They say they make the prettiest babies. Likewise, in the scene at the lawyer's office, the PCA instructed Sturgis to remove, and I quote, any reference whatsoever to Trudy's pregnancy, including Johnson's line, the marriage was consummated, I presume, they usually are, to which Emmy replies sternly, she's positive. At no time does the film discuss Trudy's pregnancy explicitly, and later on in her pregnancy, she's framed strategically behind sofas and under layers of heavy blankets to hide her growing belly. Sturgis agreed to remove direct references to Trudy's dalliance, but there was no way to omit clever inferences of a divine pregnancy. Production on The Miracle of Morgan's Creek wrapped on December 23, 1942, 
with additional scenes shot in late February 1943. Because of a backlog of films at Paramount, including another Surges film, The Great Moment, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek was not released until January of 1944. To uphold the surprise miracle element, and I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, Paramount released press kits that included the following note. Paramount earnestly requests that you do not reveal the miracle in your review of the picture, as advanced knowledge of it will undoubtedly detract from the enjoyment of those subsequently seeing the picture. Critical reviews were generally positive. Even the curmudgeonly New York Times Bosley Crowther wrote that it was audacious and irreverent, and that, and I quote, Mr. Sturgis has a satire which is more cheeky than all the rest. It's hard to imagine how he ever persuaded the Hayes boys that he wasn't trying to undermine all morals. However, audience reaction was mixed, with one Massachusetts viewer writing, We are provincial enough to call it rotten. As good citizens, we are concerned with the juvenile delinquency problem, as a serious national problem, not as a subject of comedy. Likewise, a viewer in Minnesota wrote, In Hollywood, I understand you can get away with despoiling young girls, and morals don't exist except for yokels. Do you have to spread that poison here too? Sturgis issued a statement rebuking the morality charges, saying, and I quote, it so happens that I intended the miracle of Morgan's Creek as anything but evil, meretricious, and destructive of moral standards. I wanted to show what happened to young girls who disregard their parents' advice and who confuse patriotism with promiscuity. As I do not work in the church, I tried to adorn my sermon with laughter. For failing to make you laugh then, I apologize, but I refuse to plead guilty to contributing to the delinquency of minors. Nevertheless, the film did exceptional business at the box office. It earned around $9 million, making it Paramount's highest-grossing film of 1944. At the 1945 Academy Awards, Sturgis had the rare distinction of receiving two nominations for Best Writing, Original Screenplay, for The Miracle of Morgan's Creek and Hail the Conquering Hero. To get back to the question I posed at the beginning of this episode, how did Sturgis get away with making a film like The Miracle of Morgan's Creek? There's no single reason, but historians have proposed several theories. Diana Jacobs suggests that the PCA found Sturgis's script to be both funny and timely given its wartime theme, thus making them more inclined to be lenient. Meanwhile, Matthew Bernstein hypothesizes that Sturgis packed so much objectionable content in his script that it became too daunting for the PCA to attend to every last detail. Similarly, Michael Slowick contends that Sturgis's piecemeal script submission worked to his benefit because, as I mentioned earlier, it became difficult for the censors to fully comprehend the nature of the film's salaciousness. In reality, it's likely a combination of these factors. Sturgis was a cunning master of his craft, and was equally savvy at navigating the treacherous censorship waters, understanding how and why they worked the way they did. He used their system against them, resulting in a screwball comedy peppered with body humor quite unlike anything from the classical Hollywood period. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Or me, I'm at The Screwball Girl. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye! Bye-bye.